Welcome, everyone. This is episode 24 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Richard Davies. He's a fellow at the London School of Economics. He was the economics editor at The Economist. He was a speech writer at the Bank of England, and he's most recently the author of the book Extreme Economies, Survival, Failure, Future, Lessons from the World's Limits. Richard, welcome. Brandon, thanks for having me on. I, I loved your book. This was an incredibly entertaining book that was that was part part travelogue, uh, part global economics primer. Now, I, 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 as I was reading this book, I have to confess that I was I was imagining that you might come on the podcast and I was eager to pick your brain because I noticed that it's it's clear your knowledge of economics is incredibly deep and it's clear that you're incredibly insightful. However, you have this way of holding your cards a little close to your vest. Uh, you might know by background, I'm a poker player and I, it, it, yeah. it, it makes you withhold information in every setting. And I, I know probably because you have a one foot in policy, you probably have a similar tendency to uh, withhold information. And, and I would challenge anyone to guess your political or economic views having read this book because you you kind of hold hold your cards closely in that in that regard. Is that fair? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I think so. But oh, but that is fair. Uh, but I'm also very happy to discuss sort of where I got to. But more, it was more that um, it, the book was a really an opportunity for me. So I um, started doing it um, and started researching actually back in 2016, just after the. Um, the UK's EU referendum, where I'd gone off and actually worked as an advisor to our Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, so our Finance Ministry, um, in a position that was um, uh, appointed, sort of chosen by him. And when the EU referendum went wrong, um, from the perspective of, of, the, of the side, if you want, that, that, that I was working for, um, essentially all of those posi positions got cut. And so I suddenly, for the first time, um, had some time on my hands and I'd been and that was one formative experience basically we as the economics and policy community had completely misread the way people felt about globalization and trade and immigration and then that cast back to my time in my sort of mid to early 20s at the Bank of England where we'd completely missed the great financial crisis and so um, I wanted to go off on this trip. You know, it's the kind of trip of a lifetime, really. These nine places, 100,000 miles of travel. Um, and tried to start with a blank sheet. So I'm glad that it comes across that way because I didn't want this to, to be a book which goes with a preconceived notion that, you know, markets and economics are good uh, or bad. I really genuinely tried to be objective and just write down what I found in each place. And, and it's a mix, as you might imagine. Fascinating. I was in London at the time of the referendum. I went for yeah. a different reason for for Wimbledon, but I, I remember the shock, uh, the shock on the streets, the shock in financial markets, the shock in, in yeah. betting markets as this as this 10 to one dog scenario came through and big shock in betting markets, right? Cause we were there the default 
And I think that, I, think, I don't know if anyone's written the history of this down, but a hedge fund, and I can't remember who it was, had done their own private polling and said that, you know, it was definitely going to be, the vote was going to be for Remain. And, and suddenly um, people were sort of tweeting about bet, betting markets, had it, you know, nine, ten to one. And then it was completely wrong. So, um, so yeah, some people have got burned there. Yeah, well, betting markets had it priced the same way as... Uh as financial markets pretty much, which was about there, nine or 10 to one, nearly a lock. And, and it was one of the most active betting markets of all times. You can, you can never guess what is going to be bet. Like for instance, the presidential election in 2012 was extremely heavily bet in both directions. It was just insanely popular to bet on that presidential race. Whereas the presidential race today, um, it seems like interesting and it seems like there would be a lot of difference of opinion, but there's just not a lot of appetite to bet on it. Um, and that referendum, there was an insane amount of action. So people were betting like hundreds of thousands of dollars on each side of that kind of 1.1 euro odds kind of price. And, and the, and then as the news came in that, that it might go the other way, um, the betting market shifted and the futures crushed and all that, all that sort of stuff had happened very quickly. And I guess the way that you guys do the exit polling or something, what I remember uniquely about that was unlike the presidential election where the news sort of unfolds over hours, it literally unfolded over like one hour. So what happens is the individual, and it's the same really in, in all elections, but individual, um, uh, local authorities collect together their own votes. And over time it's become this, uh, like a sort of matter of pride to see who can do it qu uh, quickest. And I think I'm right in saying it's Sunderland in the north of England, northeast of England, um, you know, literally like the whole county sort of gets together collecting because they want it to be a news item that their result will come out first. And, and so because of that, you get this thing of like five to ten places sort of will all announce really quite quickly and then you can sort of correlate the likely voting intention of those places where it came out and get a pretty good view of of where, which way things are going to go so that so that came as a as a personal and professional shock and then and then you sort of transitioned to this project that you had had in mind for a little while yeah so i've been thinking about this um for quite a while um the two commenters one um, again even before brexit working at the bank of england and in the city of london through 2006 to about 2011 i think it was um was a really formative experience just seeing everything um around you melt down i mean i was in the bank i remember sitting there Famously, we were having out was then known as the Great Stability um, that week, and it just as sort of hushed whispers went round when Northern Rock, which was the first um, UK bank to fail, was mortgage lender failed, um, and then you know in the weeks and months that followed, we had you know, G20 riots, people actually rioting outside the Bank of England, and that's something you you just never thought you'd see as a calm and um sort of calculated profession of central banking 
and and clearly we're, we're missing something and 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 in the way we we look and and do economics and tell stories about economics and the reason i think that matters is because i think we know um in, in the sense i don't think there's much uncertainty um some trends that we can get a handle on so we, we didn't know we we're going to have a pandemic this year but there are some things that are going to happen over the 10 next 10 years which we can pretty much put a, a fairly big bet on happening um and those are the, the demographic shift that we're seeing um the rise of technology and particularly technology adopted by the state um so digital society digital government um, and also the rise of inequality. And those things are, are going to happen. Um, and they all, they all bring really big uncertainties. So the fact that we don't do, for example, central banking, which is something we've been working on really hard for, um, you know, since, since the Bretton Woods era, uh, very well makes me a little bit concerned about the trends that we're facing. And so I wanted to kind of go off and invest in them. I was very curious about where exactly you stood. So I'm going to make some guesses now and you can, you can tell me how I, how I do. Um, I believe that we, that we both share a uh, deep belief in, in free markets and, and markets generally. I, I also believe that we both um, think that uh, that politics and history are deeply interwoven and perhaps dominant over over pure economics. Um, I believe that we're both uh, deeply concerned about inequality and particularly the way that our politicized markets now lead to lead to uh, inequality. And now I'm going to reach a little bit more. I, I wonder if your interest in the, uh, the extreme economies, um, if you see that, uh, in some ways, these, these places where things are currently broken, these, these economies that are a little bit on the periphery now where things are in some ways broken or, or they've had to adapt to difficult circumstances. If it says something about the future in, in the center in places like the U S and the UK and Europe, because to be honest, when I, when I've, I ordered the book, the moment that I heard about it, I pre-ordered it many months ago. And I, I, I pre-ordered it because um, I do kind of believe that in the U S say we're on a bad path and have been on a bad path for a while. And I was, I was thinking, Hmm, you know, learning about extreme economies, like learning about the Mad Max economy might be, uh, actually really valuable. It might be a, it might be an important playbook. Yeah. So, um, on that, just to, st I'll, I, I liked your, um, your sort of summary of, um, sort of political, political economy, I guess. But just to start with that, with that last point, um, look, 
you know, cards on the table, kind of extreme economies. You know, I worked as a, as a journalist. I realized you need a decent title to get people to read your article. And, you know, it's a good, it's, it's a sort of interesting and um, potentially eye-catching idea for, but I, I really did and do hope that it has a kind of bigger idea. And, and it's one that I touch on in the, um, in the intro, but I actually don't give much sort of autobiography stuff but the autobiographical link is that I actually started out as a medical student so I studied medicine um, and then I switched to philosophy politics and economics and um, one of the things in in medicine that's that strikes you when you move to studying economics is the sort of dominance of the feeling within economics that you need to look at the entire distribution um, you need to think mainly about the median um, but then, you, you know, you want to talk about sort of dif- distance from the median and that's in unemployment and growth rates and whatever the thing is you're looking at. And that's just not the way um, science has progressed. And so one of the cases I talk about right at the start is this famous British an- anatomist called William Harvey, who discovered circulation. He discovered the way blood circulates around the, the body. And he did this precisely by looking at cases of people who had had an injury, one young man famously that kind of should have died, and, but they'd survived. And because of that, he was able to, to study, literally by looking uh, into the, through their rib cages, um, the way that the mechanics worked. Um, and, this, and that's the sort of first example I could find of, of like extreme science. But it goes on, and you know, very famously, there's the guy, he, I, I, I guess you, if you haven't heard of Harvey, you've probably heard of Phineas Gage, because I think it yeah. happened in the States or maybe in Canada, this guy who had like a metal rod shot through his head and it sort of separated the lobes, lobes of his brain. And that one extreme case, so not a distribution of people, not a median, but literally one abnormal, odd um, event formed the basis of huge uh, amounts of experiments in neurology and the way modern neurology works. So, so, that, so definitely, I think that um, there's a lot of soul searching going on in economics at the moment about how to sort of improve it and so on. And my sort of small contribution, I hope, with this book is to say, just look at the sciences. We don't need to, as economists or social scientists more broadly, always obsess about our sample size and our micro data um, on you know, billions of observations. Sometimes a simple story about one person you know, one refugee camp, which I cover, one high security prison where a new money has involved, can tell us something about the way money in general works. And I think so some people won't like that idea, but it's used by medics and it has been for hundreds of years. So, so, so I hope, um, I hope it works in the book. It very much, it very much does. And so, so the early chapter on uh, the two, largest Syrian refugee camps, or I believe they're the two uh, largest. Yeah, they are. That, um, that's what gives me the sense that you believe strongly in free markets and, and you um, are not opposed to inequality stemming directly from free markets, because in that, in those camps, some people are living well on the basis of providing for needs that that come up and and you have a favorable orientation towards towards that towards that sort of success 
related inequality. But then if we go to the end of the book and your chapter on Santiago, which I'd like to dive into for a bit, um, in talking about San, the the inequality in Santiago, which has become a big problem, you um, you seem to bemoan it because it's not really anymore the result of hard work and providing for needs, but rather uh, building no, moats, working politics, uh, sort of suppressing opportunity for some things. All the all the things that that. Uh, that we hate about politicized markets. So, so I would, I would, I would really enjoy hearing about uh, how you came to focus on Santiago, um, what you did to, to learn about it. And then maybe, maybe also, and I, I don't want to make the questions too grand, but, but um, I, I liked the book, uh, the commanding heights by Daniel Jurgen in the late nineties, where he's, he's looking at um, Eastern European economies that are transitioning quickly to free markets. And he's, he's basically triumphalist about, about this, about this change to free market. And he basically implies that, that we're never going to look back. This is a, a beautiful thing for the world and for these places. Um, and at the same time, there were triumphalist articles coming out about, places like Chile and, and, and talking about the, um, basically the direct link from the university of Chicago and the deep free market orientation of the university of Chicago to policy in, in Chile and, and how the policy led to extreme success. And, and basically the thinking in the late nineties was that Chile was always going to be the most successful place in Latin America because they they had figured out how to make free markets work for them. To answer your question about the kind of really big political economy question, the refugee camps chapter was a really interesting one, essentially because there's two of them. One's called Zartari, the other's called Azraq. Zartari is run on more or less a capitalist free market lines. Um, Azraq is, by contrast, a complete command and control economy. And it's very difficult to go to those two places and see people under such duress whose lives have essentially been reduced to nothing. They're living in the the Jordanian desert, um, having left all of their belongings back in Syria and not come away from it um, invigorated and and um, optimistic, invigorated and optimistic about um, the way markets work. The Zartri camp is full of entrepreneurs offering any number of goods and services you could want. It has a very high employment rate. And in general, people were, um, you know, they're, they're fleeing civil war, so they're not happy to be there. But they, within their choices, they're happy to be in that camp. And Azraq is the polar opposite. Very few um, entrepreneurs, few jobs and the people there were the, the kind of miserable. So in that chapter, yes, absolutely. Um, it's an example of why in public policy, when we take steps to kind of crush the market instinct and um, the power of markets as a way of allocating goods and resources, that often leads to, to really bad outcomes. But, but then later, um, when I was in the Darien Gap, there was a complete... Um, 
uh, adjustment or a shock to, to that the way of thinking. I was there a few months later where I saw this market that I discuss in the book, uh, the market for teak. And um, I'll leave it to, 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 to listeners if they're interested to, to take a look at that chapter. But every single market problem exists there. There are subsidies, there are tariffs that don't work, there's confusion of ownership rights. And the result is an economic market essentially for the environment, which destroys the environment. So um, in short, I don't think there's a, there's a one size fits all answer. But what I do think is that policy needs to be much um, tougher and bolder. And so a center position that in general allows markets to flower and helps them flower. But in certain cases, it's way tougher on just eradicating dangerous markets is, is for me what I think is the way forward. Um, but, you know, the, the, to, to, to come back to thinking about the future, a, a real test for our of sort of variants of capitalism, our variants of how we're going to um, regulate markets is, is precisely Santiago, because that economy, as you touched on, as we got to the 1990s, was being talked about as it was literally the poster child for economic development. And that's, that's why I wanted to go there. The 90s were a time when uh, markets were deeply celebrated generally. Um, it, was, it will probably be looked back upon as the height of the free markets within the U.S. Just because it was a time that when, when Bill Clinton came into office, there were, there were fears that he would be very much a statist president, that he would bring in... Hillary, and they would nationalize healthcare, and it would be um, it would be very much anti-free market. In fact, Clinton turned out to be one of our one of our most free market presidents, and and those were booming years in the economy. Now we can debate whether that was demographics or just luck or related to dot com or what whatever. Um, but they were they were uh, good years in the economy. But but within the economics profession, there was this free market triumphalism um, that related to the fact that we were relatively fresh from the collapse of the Soviet Union. The and and it had say from the perspective of the late nineties you had this so-called shock therapy approach seemingly successfully applied in former USSR economies. And in Chile, right? So, the, so, so I'm, I'm totally with you. I, um, but but it, I think it, and you can find documents that, that, are, that are online um, published by the IMF and the World Bank from that period with statements about learning the lessons from Chile, um, the Chile model, how to replicate um, uh, Chilean economics. And that economics was precisely that kind of shock, privatization shock, which you discussed, which the, the Soviet, post-Soviet economies were encouraged to go through. But Chile had been through it in the late 70s, um, after the fall of the, the last um, communist or socialist government of uh, Salvador Allende in, in the early 70s, 72. So, but it, 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 it was, um, 
it was literally that model was being um, expounded and exported by the, the global bodies, which are, you know, they do, we should have them. And in general, they, they do a valuable job. But one of the things they do is they push out economic ideas around the world. And from um, Washington, D.C. and also Geneva in terms of the WTO, this idea that um, the Chile model was going to be a successful model was being pushed really, really hard. And correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the one of the differences between the the Chile implementation and the Eastern European implementation was that in Eastern Europe they were they were starting from ground zero. So the shock therapy, a lot of it was like, how do we get ownership of of factories and companies from government hands to private hands as quickly as possible. And that, and, and that, that basic move, it showed obvious successes in the, in the early years. Whereas in Chile, they were starting from sort of an, an intermediate phase instead of starting from, from truly ground zero. And because they were starting from an intermediate phase, um, they were they were concerned a bit about uh, education policy and health policy and and these sort of less primal well more more intermediate stage concerns and basically the Chicago school thinking about things like education and health, which was insanely free market like the gary becker like let let education be entirely free market let healthcare be entirely free free market let even prisons be entirely free market like let everything be market that that extreme chicago school thinking which was very fashionable at the time i mean we forget now that gary becker won a nobel prize like he was a, a very influential thinker um but he had extreme free market views and that's what was implemented in Chile, which was quite a bit different than the implementation in, in Eastern Europe. I think that's fair. So on the, um, I mean, there's a difference of kind of 20 years. Um, Chile is happening sort of 20 years before. Um, so it's, you know, roughly 72 versus 92, um, 1972 versus 1992. Um, uh, and, and you're definitely right in that Chile is more intermediate. I, I forget the numbers um, off the top of my head. Um, they're, they're there in the chapter, but there's, uh, there's some striking statistics on things like, for example, the number of state-owned companies um, in Chile, which had been, you know, let's say, there were, let's say it was like 50, and then under the last um, socialist um, government of Allende, it went up to, let's say, 100, and then um, when Pinochet took over, didn't know anything about economics, military man, military dictator, obviously, you know, he called up on these Chicago-trained economists who had been off to the University of Chicago, had come back, and, and really had been working in um, academia and hadn't had much impact. Frankly, they'd improved teaching at the, uh, at the university, um, modernized, um, they would say, and, and I got a chance to interview them, and they do say the way economics was done, but didn't have any real policy impact and had put together this, this um, blueprint, literally a, a, a thick 
um, economic playbook um, known as The Brick, became known as The Brick. And you know, Pinochet hired these guys to actually impose those policies, those Chicago-inspired policies, to the economy. And so the reason your intermediate, question, intermediate level question is right, right is the number of state-owned um, enterprises had, had, had a base level, went up a bit, and then they, they unwound everything that the socialists had done and then went further and further and further until it was down to just a, a handful of, of state-owned en- enterprises. So it was really um, uh, like a petri dish of almost complete control of the be- then the best economic thinking. Because it's not just Gary Becker, right? It's Milton Friedman. And there are, apart from, I would say, I would as a Brit say Keynes, you know, when the, when the long history of economics is written, there, there are a few people of the last century that are anywhere near either Keynes or Friedman. And Friedman then was in his pomp. Um, it was the time when he had sort of TV shows and, uh, and was starting to pick up, put out general interest books. And so that was really the, the cutting edge and the best that economics had to offer. And the really interesting thing is that because of the, 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 the terrible events and the dictatorship, those ideas, these economists got almost free reign on a whole economy. Um, the initial results were very bad. It took, it took about six to eight years for things to improve. But then you just got this annual year on year, really strong growth numbers, really low inflation numbers, poverty, which is the way that the Chicago boys um, still uh, assess their own track record, not by inequality, but by poverty. So the poverty rate, and to give them their due, does really tumble um, as growth increases. And it's at this point that the IMF and the World Bank and everybody in the mid to late 90s starts talking about the, you know, how do we replicate the Chile model? How do we make all emerging markets jump to advanced, um, uh, as Chile eventually did, um, along this along this successful path, you have Argentina, which the which as the Ch- Chileans and Argentine Argentinians they really dislike each other for for one reason or another. Um, but but Argentina they they were encouraged by Chile's success and 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 adopted. Uh, a more free market orientation in a in slightly later years, and then in 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 Peru there was a roughly similar trajectory. Um, Fifteen years later, under the Fujimori, um, and in all cases, uh, it led to really societal upheavals. So at the time, you're you're examining Santiago they're in the midst of this of this kind of upheaval which seeming seemingly relates to inequality and also maybe um, maybe the fact that that they were ostensibly free markets but in actuality um, once free markets had operated for a while and and a wealth divide had taken place the the people who were were wealthy start started to try to um, try to 
gum up the free markets a bit for their own yeah. for their own interests. So maybe you could dive into that a bit. There's a lot of concern on the ground about gummed up markets and in particular oligopolies. Um, so depending on who you talk to in, in Chile, they say, oh, this country is run by three families, four families, five families. And if you do a, a list of you know the world's richest people, quite near the top, there are a few Chilean families and they just own huge swathes of industry. But the real key thing and this is another point that I hope comes across to readers of the book. You know, I've mentioned sort of academic stuff and, and the IMF and that kind of thing a few times. But, but really what I sought to do with this book is to go to the places and to report on the ground because there's often quite a big disconnect between the story that we think's there through Twitter or think tanks or working papers or whatever and the actual idea that's on the ground. And the idea that's on the ground in Chile, if you want to understand one thing, there's a problem there. And one thing that is going to mean there's going to be continued rioting there until they sort it out. It's quite simply education and the market for education. And this is, in itself is absolutely fascinating because jump back to that uh, book, the, the brick that uh, the Chicago boys put together, one of the key parts of that, you can, it's available online. Um, uh, there's, it's in Spanish, there's, there's an English uh, translation you can find as well, is a big statement about the equality of opportunity. So they say, um, they say very explicitly, you know, we want growth, we're going for growth, we're going to shrink the size of the state. But equality is important, but for them it's equality of opportunity not of outcome. So it's, it's letting everybody have a chance, not equalizing through taxation. Um, and the way they're going to guarantee this economic opportunity is through education. So that's the plan. Yet in, um, now in Chile, one of the people working there um, described it to me as educational apartheid. There's this incredibly detailed and fine-led system of schools in Santiago essentially that are part public, part private, where you can pay a kind of top-up fee. And you literally pay for what you get. So I have this chart um, in the book, uh, and I'll, I'll send, you, send you it so that, that, that you can use it in the, in the podcast recording, which is, is sort of mind-blowing. And it shows how, as you travel from the center of Santiago out, with every single um, tube stop that you go along, subway stop you go along, income falls and also school performance falls. And the correlate, I did the correlation between these things and it's like 0.99%. And, you know, you know, as, a, as an economist and anyone that's dealt with any data will know, even when there's a really strong relationship, you, you always get a bit of fuzziness. But this is just, it's almost guaranteed that the more money you have, you can live in a nicer neighborhood, the school will be better, and you'll achieve a better uh, SIMSCA, they're called, school, school grade. And, and this, the sort of hard wiring of between income inequality and educational outcomes is the very root of what's going on in Santiago at the moment. There's a whole new breed of um, politicians um, all now in their sort of mid-30s, some of them tipped to be future presidents, and they all came to power through various school and high school and then university rebellions over the past 10 years. And it's, it's education that everybody talks about on the ground. The story that you tell, which is 
quite convincing is that education it has essentially been been worked by the well off in such a way that it it basically perpetuates the current state of things the 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 current um income inequality and wealth levels and and it even does so despite the fact that um a lot of the new generation that is in these wealthy neighborhoods and is getting the best schooling they um they don't necessarily work so hard they just they, it's almost like they're they're appreciating being at the nice country club or whatever um so maybe maybe you could explain some of that because to me this really gets at the idea of the value of what you're doing of being on the ground because if you're just looking at the data you I see it the way that you see it but 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 just on the fun, just on a function of the data you have to confront the argument that the the income correlates highly with ability and and that also cor correlates uh and then the income correlates with where you live and that's how you get the the correlation that yeah. doesn't seem to square with what it doesn't square at all with your chapter but you have to confront that if you were yeah. just looking at the data but when you yeah, put yeah. the data together with with what you're doing on the ground for for me the story is convincing um, I'll answer that question, but also along the way, you asked me a little bit about sort of the method and, you know, how I, how I work and sort of put these chapters together. And it's, I mean, I don't think there's any great um, magic to it. It's just something I built up over the years working at The Economist, which is to essentially do a lot of preparatory work, a lot of reading, like two or three months reading on a place. So you know all of the data, you know the names of all the presidents, you know the, the regions you're going to go to, have lots and lots of meetings set up um, for during the visit so that when you're there on the ground, you can just spend two or three weeks literally talking to everybody and doing loads of interviews. So I you know, would try to do eight to ten interviews a day. Most of the places I went to, I did about 60 interviews. I think that was also the case in Santiago. And through that, just um, you know, a very non-quantitative methodology, like a more um, uh, anthropological approach, I, I guess, if that doesn't sound too pompous, but just building up story after story after story of people until you start to appreciate these patterns. And the pattern in Santiago, the way it comes across immediately is when you get in a taxi and you say, I'm here to study the city. The guy just immediately says, which city? I said, what do you mean, which city? And he says, there's at least five cities here in Santiago. And what he meant by that, this is five different layers. Um, and, and that's the kind of statement you get um, again and again um, while there. Essentially, to give a, a bit more color on what the, the place looks like, I mean, it's beautiful, um, very friendly people and incredible food. So I'd encourage everyone to get there. You're in the foothills of the Andes. And so the whole city is on a, on a slope. And very simply, the, the expensive properties are at the top of the slope. The cheap ones are at the bottom of the slope. There's a place in the middle called Plaza Italia. And that is like the borderline that the working class and middle class try to stay either side of. And there's this um, uh, incredibly kind of um, concerning, I would say, phenomenon of people 
voluntarily splitting um, out into separate areas, even when the thing in those areas um, is a public good or a public asset. So I spoke to some people, for example, um, who were in the the rich area, saying that they found it very difficult. They were newcomers um, uh, to the the country, said that they tried to organize um, get-togethers. One person told me this. Another tried to organize a picnic uh, in a park, and they couldn't... um, get everybody together in the same park because the people in the office at different income levels wouldn't go to the same park. And this isn't a park you have to pay to get into. It's a public park. But implicitly, there is a language within Santiago. And there's a term, there's a term, cuique, things are either cuique or non-cuique. And it's like of our class. So um, it's a thing that is done by our class, our sort of um, upper class or not done by the upper class. And that determines the way everybody behaves. And it's really perpetuated by the education system where um, because of the, the way the market works, the market both for pupils and for teachers the, the, things over time have sorted into a, just a very clear um, slicing where depending on how well you do you'll get a certain income you pitch yourself to that school they'll take you or they won't take you and you're more or less guaranteed results that will allow you to, to stay on that point on the ladder um, somebody described it to me as an educational war life in Santiago was an educational war and it's because education and link income are so tightly linked. And then there's those two things are so tightly linked to all this other softer social stuff about how social infrastructure, transport networks, parks, which restaurants you go to um, work in the city. The inequality has only, only lately boiled over into s- social disorder. Is that, is that fair? Is that right? Um, yes and no. So the, there have been concerns for, for a long time. So to jump back to, to sort of the, the heyday, as it were, of people praising Chile, it was clear that you could see inequality was, was rising um, back at the turn of the millennium. And, and this concern over schools actually started in 2006. Uh, there was something called the Penguins Revolt or the Penguins Rebellion. And that's because it started with high school kids and high school kids in Santiago all wear pretty much the same uniform. It's like a white front with the black lapels. And so people jokingly call them penguins. It's like a little nickname for school kids. And there was this high school rebellion. And then I think about five years later, there was the Chilean winter, which was... Um, that age, that cohort had basically become um, university kids and there was a big, uh, big university student-led marches and so on. And that group, the, um, the, the, the heads of the student, student politics is a big thing um, in Chile in a way. I don't think it is, it used to be, but isn't anymore in the US and UK. And the head of both the University of Chile and the Catholic University of Chile, the re- representatives, um, uh, student unions became um, members of parliament and are now heads and they're now sort of getting into their mid mid 30s and are now heads of political parties um, and are really shaking up the way that, that Chilean politics works so 
so yes, the latest demonstrations um, late last year were the, the worst and the most violent, but you could actually see this coming like a decade out. Um, th this movement around education and anger around education um, is at least a decade old. Some of the protests of the last year, um, the, the immediate cause was related to public transport fees is that yeah yeah but, and, but that, that's exactly what i mean about how um you've kind of got to go there um and um sort of understand the place and i, I had a quick call with um uh the friends and people i had met when i was there just to check you know that the story hadn't changed and, and they all said said that it happened so yes it was a hike in the um, in the subway um, fee, a subway like everybody uses it is really really crammed, and so it annoys people. But you know that was the match. But the fuel, the underlying fuel, is much more this educational war, and the underlying fuel for that is basically the failure of this ideal of economic um, the opportunity uh, equality of opportunity. Excuse me. Um, which was supposed to be like a core of the Chilean model, and it just hasn't turned out to be. So the the equality of opportunity was supposed to come from a relatively free market way of of doing education, which is almost like uh, Milton Friedman's ideas of uh, education vouchers and things like this, right? Yeah, it's exactly that model. Exactly that model. And in the U.S., we've experimented it, but not not on a only in, in, in local areas and it hasn't been successful enough to, to go to other areas. Um, but the Chilean example is, is worrisome. And, um, from, from the American perspective, I find, I find Santiago an interesting example because obviously concerns about inequality are starting to boil over now. And, um, in, in Chile, it's you have what was intended to be a very free market for education that was supposed to create equality of opportunity. The free market fails because it essentially becomes politicized and, and captured by the upper class. And then in the US, I think a lot of our problems relate to the fact that we have these ostensibly free financial markets, but the financial markets have become politicized and, and the, the well-off in the U S use financial markets to enrich themselves because these markets have become deeply politicized and, and basically the well-off get bailed out at every turn. And, um, people that don't own financial assets get no benefit from that. So, so it's, it's interesting that you have these these things that are held up as like, uh, this is very free and it's going to lead to equality of opportunity, but, but actually they become captured and it leads to uh, exactly the opposite. The other, the other interesting parallel, I think, is that in, in Chile, the recent social disorder was caused by this very modest increase in uh, public transport costs. But in the book, you sort of preview it a bit because you say that that the um, the lower income people in Chile they have a real problem with cash flow. They're always like having zero cash. 
And you note that it comes in part because similar similar to the case in the US, we have a very well-developed financial system if you're rich, but a very poor financial system if you're if you're poor, like a lot of a lot of the very poor in the US, they don't have bank accounts, they do payday lenders and it's like very inefficient way of dealing with money where and and you say in in Chile it's a similar system of like payday type loans and there's there's basically uh, very very little cash flow and then it's exacerbated in Chile by the the education issue where a, a lot of the people that basically had poor educational results had had borrowed money to go to school there's a parallel in the US where um, in the US um, half of all people who start their college education finish. But at Harvard, it's 99%. At all the top 25 schools, it's like above 95%. And then at some very expensive schools that cater to the low end, it's sometimes 20%. Yeah. So some of those people are getting the worst of all possible worlds where they're taking on huge loans, high, not high interest, but huge loans, and then they're not finishing the degree. Um, you noticed yeah, a decent bit of that. Yeah, so this issue of, of cash flow and of sort of week-to-week poverty is a really important one, and it's one that the people who put the system in place fail to see. So I was lucky enough to spend some time with Rolf Luders. He was the finance minister of the country, um, trained in Chicago, and his view very clearly said it to me, and he's, he's on, on record saying it, and he would be prepared to defend it at any point, is just, I delivered growth, and just look at what happened to poverty. Poverty fell away. Um, and the, but the, the problem um, is that when you go and talk to the, in the, the, the poorest working class areas, you meet people who officially, in terms of the statistics, and this is just an example of how measurement and our obsession with statistics and things can, can bias our picture, means that they're officially not poor. So the, the minimum wage is set at a level um, the, the, most of the women I interviewed in those communities were on the minimum wage. Whenever I asked them, how much do you earn? They always would just laugh and say, la minima, like I'm on the minimum wage. How would I get paid anything else? And if you added into the, to their salary, what a typical, um, uh, their husband's salary that I also t- talked to, you'd see it's just below the um, definition of what it is um, to just above rather the definition of what it is to be poor and the definition of where you get aid. So that means that in the statistics, those people aren't classed as poor. They don't have any aid, but the, the, the level of that inequality, and this is the really striking thing. You actually start to realize that inequality that sharp actually breeds poverty. What I mean by that is those areas, there's such a difference between income between the rich and poor areas for lots of things great example would be bookshops and pharmacies. They don't even bother to locate in the low income areas. And so the impact, because, because the people there have low, uh, low income, it's not a very fruitful area to locate. The impact of that is if you're a person needing a medicine in a rich area, you might be able to just walk to the pharmacy or take a you know, cycle there. 
So your, trans, your time cost of getting there is zero, your travel cost is zero. If you're in a poor area, you have to travel um, across uh, Santiago, which is very difficult, to get hold of medicines or to get hold of books. And so that and a whole system of examples like it, like a lack of access to credit, which means people just borrow from their local shop week by week, and then that shop charges them an interest rate in a kind of payday lending sort of scheme. There's a whole list of things that I found which basically mean that um, perplex, really perplexing and, 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 and problematic thing, which is that the lower income people actually pay more for their staples than high income people do. And that's really, you know, as an economist, you know, you started off, we were talking about, you know, are markets good or do they work well? Wherever you are on the spectrum and you think how markets should work, that isn't the way things are supposed to work. It isn't supposed to be that the people with the lowest income um, pay, the, pay, the, pay the highest rates and end up having to trek across cities to get basic goods like, like simple drugs and um, textbooks. It's fascinating. And actually, um, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, who no one talks about anymore, but, but his books, uh, they're, they're very fun reads. I, I find them. He, he, he talks frequently about this problem and, and about how with more equal income, you actually get better consumer goods because you get right in the, in the middle of the market. And it, it, as it relates to consumer goods and services, it's very inefficient to have a lot of inequality because, um, because you get exactly this problem that you're talking about where the, the consumer goods manufacturers, they follow dollars, not people. And, and it, you get very, very strange and, and inefficient, societally inefficient um, allocations of energy. Again, you know, let's see. Um, let's see if I'm right. I mean, th th this this may not happen anywhere else, but it may uh, may or may already be happening in the US. I'm not I'm not sure. But you know, Chile is like ahead of everyone. Santiago is ahead ahead of everyone down this path. I was 20, 30 years now into this experiment, and what I found, like potentially the ultimate reason that you would say that the Chicago experiment failed, is that in whole um, communas like whole sectors of the city um communists communist party politicians have got into power and are themselves having to provide these basic goods and services through a command and control economy method so i met the the, the communist um, mayor of a, of a borough called recoletta his name's daniel jadu he's big on twitter you can find him on twitter and he set up this people's pharmacy and you know credit to the guy he, he just sort of sits there with this um list of prices chile really only has three pharmacies it's kind of oligopolistic um with their prices for these essential drugs and then the prices at which he can buy them and they're you know a tenth of the price and so in this city that was supposed to be um the bastion of chicago school economics you've got a communist mayor providing pharmaceutical goods and that's you know that's that's what's currently happening in, in in Chile. So it's it's just it's just an example of how far from the the ideal that that city has gone. Now, when you get to the politics, um, the for me the the Latin American lesson is that um, economics 
are, are one thing, but the real trouble comes when people don't get along. Like the, the real reason that, that various Latin American countries have fallen off trajectory is not really that they've gotten the economics wrong. They just couldn't, they couldn't keep people getting along. The politics didn't work. And you're suggesting that maybe uh, Chile is getting close to that part where the politics sort of falls apart. Certainly, as an American, it feels like we are, are teetering dangerously um, and our politics are uh, on the verge of breaking. And I, I wonder, in Chile... Do you get the sense that things are are near a, a breaking point, or you think that Chileans they have the reputation as the most reserved of the of, of the Latins? So, do, is it is it likely that they're just going to talk their way through this, or if the inequality gets worse, do you think it hits a hits a boiling point? It's of interest from the U.S. point of view because this summer, as you've no doubt observed, we've we've reached the boiling point and we couldn't it was things were on the verge of not working in certain in key cities it's that's like the question isn't it it's not just an interesting question it's the question i think that there's an interesting parallel and i'm an outsider in both places so you'll be able better to comment on this than me but i'll just float it as an idea i think there's an interesting parallel um in santiago for example in the u.s which is very different that I would say to the UK, which is that um, there are different tiers of power. Like the big thing that people in Europe don't understand or are shocked by when you get to the US, given the way we see um, US politics played to us over here, is just how powerful the states are and just how powerful state governors are and how you can have like different minimum wages in different states, right? That's not something that we would ever countenance in the UK. Um, and similarly in Chile, like I just explained that example of how, you know, there's a very um, uh, right-wing, um, well, centre-right, I guess you'd say, um, president and the, the sort of right uh, and, the, and the more market-friendly sector of um, the political elite are in power at the country level, but it's still possible in a major um, segment of Santiago, the capital city, for a, co a local communist mayor to take charge and to provide these pharmaceutical goods. And so you were asking about boiling point, and, and I, I think that if it weren't for that, so if it were just you had this top-down power, um, and in the, and the US, if it were just that you had one set of decrees coming out of Washington, D.C. on, you know, minimum wage, look at um, approach to um, drug legalization, um, alcohol, the, the regulation of gambling, something I know you've talked about in your podcast. There's actually a lot of freedom in both countries for there to be uh, different policies at a local level. And I think that that surely is a sort of insurance against things boiling over. And if it weren't for that, things would be closer to boiling point. Because it means that if you're that angry in your local neighborhood, at least you've got a chance of changing your local politician and changing some local policy, even if you can't affect the federal or the national policy. Well, that's, that's very interesting. And it's also scary from the American point of view. Um, because... 
in the grand history, what you're saying is exactly true. You had the Hamiltonian versus Jeffersonian divide and you reached a compromise and then you had the the Andrew Jackson era where you went back to the states and and you had the whole the whole history which has basically held up pretty well where you had a decent bit of power at the state governments my belief is that that's no longer true and it might be hard to see from your from your perspective or from the non-american perspective but i think that that has fallen apart and it's fallen apart for a very simple reason. It's because state governments are required to balance their budgets. They're not, they're not allowed to run persistent long-term deficits in the way that the federal government is. And the, the COVID crisis has meant that there's now very large structural deficits for all of the states. Those deficits were always in the cards anyway because of demographics, but COVID has accelerated it and made it where structurally these state governments um, are going to have very large deficits. So that basically puts all the power currently at the federal government because everyone knows that the federal government is going to have to cover those deficits and it yeah. just gives the government all the power in how the money's used. And it, it basically gives all the, all the power to the federal government. And that's just the way it is. Right. Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. That's really interesting. No, because now, I mean, all of these, all of these states that we knew had fiscal troubles, uh, I mean, it's just a disaster. It's just a red ink disaster. And, and, we haven't even gotten far enough along in COVID management to talk about exactly what we're going to do, but the large city and state bailouts are, are coming and it, it gets, I'm sure you've read recently controversies about how um, Trump in his management of COVID, he, he finally came up with a detailed plan but but then realized that the biggest breakouts of COVID were in democratic states with democratic governors. So he decided not to implement his plan so that he could <laughs> he could then blame it on. It's it's kind of messy right now in the in the U.S. Um, so for me, I read the Santiago chapter with with obvious uh, extreme interest. I would I would like to like to touch on um, some other chapters. Um, with regard to demographics, you went to Akita, Japan. I I love Japan on my 40th birthday trip. I went to Japan, um, fascinated by it. I I was shocked by your by your chapter in that you did have these these ghost cities, and you can already see uh, extreme change in in Japan because of because of aging. I would. The questions that I wanted to ask you there, um, Japan is distinctive and the Japanese are so civil and that country, um, it's likely to keep working and to get through problems in a way that other countries maybe won't be able to. And, um, I wonder what parts of dealing with an aging population 
you think are generally instructive and which parts you think are sort of distinct, distinctively uh, Japanese? So the reason I went to Japan, like with all, with all of the chapters, I basically picked a topic which I think is important and then tried to go to the, the global um, cutting edge, like the leading edge, the, the, most, the place where this issue was most pressing. And just because of the way the demographics um, have worked out, uh, Japan is that place. And within Japan, Akita is the prefecture. And on the Japanese being civil and polite and kind of well-mannered and so on, um, I think, again, it's one of those things where, um, of course, there's some reason for that reputation but also when you get there and you just spend a few weeks talking to people you find that most people around the the world are pretty much the same so I was a little bit concerned I thought you know I'm going to be asking these difficult questions about the country um maybe um for they, they won't want to sort of open up and talk about it and that's just not the case at all you know the Japanese are up for gossip and um complaining about their politicians and anger and and just as just as everyone in the us or uk would be and the thing that comes up all of the time and it goes directly to your question about this sort of reputation for civility and respect is a term they call sedai kan kakusa and the the three kanji basically mean between generations and unfairness and it translated translates as intergenerational inequality and the reason that's interesting is is that even in this country that has a reputation much of it well deserved and to, to do with confucian ethics i guess for respect for one's forebearers for respect for the elders so even in a country that where you would expect people to keep quiet and not to complain about intergenerational inequality everyone's talking about it and the reason that everyone's talking about it is the pension and the healthcare system and the idea that the the younger generation basically the millennial and generation below i spent a good deal of time in akita talking to doing like a round table at the university there, talking to university kids to sort of gauge the 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 views um you know, they realize that they're paying into a pension system that is more generous than the one that they will get their pensions out of. And they realize the same thing about healthcare. And, um, you know, they're annoyed about it. So, um, uh, so my point to your question, like how much of this is peculiarly Japanese? Like I, what I'm saying is if that happens in a country where people are generally respectful of, of the elders and, and, and will do things to support the kind of dynastic family set up. Well, in countries where those views are a bit looser and people are more ready to complain about the elderly, I think we'd see it even more sharply. To tangent a little bit, I think that in the US, um, a lot of the inequality discussion is actually tied up with aging and you've got this peculiar situation where the the older people control all the wealth but because of breaking of family ties and and improved healthcare and so forth they um they know that they're going to live a long time and they they feel the need to really protect what they have and so you have this 
kind of extreme generational divide um, that stems from from the old just having a having a uh, very understandable desire to want to protect what they have for this unknown uh, very long life. And I think that's definitely going to be the case in in the US and in the UK and you know um, all other advanced economies. For what it's worth, what I saw on that issue. Um, either the the question of long lives, so enhanced lifespan, which is one of two big drivers. It's not the only one. It's the first of kind of two pillars of demographics. Is I came away pretty optimistic on that, and it's kind of for exactly the reason you just said, which is that the elderly have all the assets, they have all the housing, um, they have these big pensions. Of course, there's big questions about pension or poverty, but on average, that generation has become very wealthy. And so in a market economy, getting back to the question of markets, what's the natural thing that happens? And when you look carefully around Japan, you can just see everywhere innovations, literally innovations to the built environment, extra rails being put up in um, public conveniences, like near the ATMs, there's a little clip so you can put your walking stick so while you use the ATM. Um, everywhere as you go around that country, you can see how the, the wants and needs of the elderly generation are creating a new market. There's a new market for different types of golf clubs, um, different types of shoes, all of these things. And many of the young people I spoke to were working in those industries. So it becomes a um, you know, the economy essentially is a place where people with wants and needs and the ability to fulfill those needs can meet and trade. And so there are big concerns. I don't want to downplay it, but, but in a sense, that's what economics and economies are all about, dealing with that kind of problem. The second pillar of demographics, which is basically that places are going to vanish because of falling birth rates, I actually became away and after mulling it over was much more disturbed about because what happens in these places is something we don't talk about as economists or policymakers, which is just a complete freeze by which I mean, so take a market that everyone understands and everybody talks about housing markets. It's not the case that in these disappearing villages, as in the great financial crash of 2008, you know, in the US and the UK, the, the price of housing plummeted, but then the, the market cleared, by which I mean that the buyers and sellers could meet at a lower price. And yeah, people made losses, but the market continued to work. In these places, the market just ceases to exist. There's no price at all at which you can sell a house and it just freezes. And it goes further than just markets because there's going to be no future to this village or this town there's no incentive or need to get involved in local politics. And so Japan now has a problem of all these local elections going completely uncontested because everyone knows that everyone in that village is really elderly. So why would you want to become mayor and work on a 10-year policy plan when the place isn't going to exist anymore? So this, this sort of like economics and social shift of literally disappearing rather than aging is something that I think we should focus on more and kind of try and separate out from that, those, those well-worn um, questions of pensions and healthcare. Very important. But the economics of just like complete disappearance of a place, I think is new and, 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 and different. 
you you have a very dark element to that chapter, which is you talk about elderly suicides and the phenomenon of older Japanese people just being lonely and killing themselves. And I wonder if, if you have insight into um, what that's coming from. I mean, we assume that it's it's less likely in ones in that have deep family roots. We assume that it's less likely if people uh, feel like they do have a good pension and do have good retirement assets. Um, what, what is the cause of it? And have you looked for similar phenomena in other societies? Um, wonder if you could talk to that a bit. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Kudo Koshi. I'm probably making a mess of that, but it means lonely death and it's a real, um, problem and, and kind of, um, growing phenomenon. It is, as with many social, um, socioeconomic problems, it's, it's linked with the, the standard things that you would um, worry about, um, such as income. That doesn't tell the whole story, though, and, and the kind of the softer side of it. I spoke to um, some people that really told me a lot about it, actually, as I spoke to this great bunch of um, people in um, Akita who were the over-70s football league. And this is what I mean about the aging thing becoming, um, we shouldn't necessarily be negative about it. Just as a quick, quick aside, like there are, pick any age, like over 80s. I don't know if there's an over 90s, but there's, there's loads of teams and groups and things for people who are only over this certain age because age reaching these elevated ages has become something of a kind of badge of honor. And anyway, these guys in the over 70s football team were saying how important their team is to them even if they run really slowly compared to when they're young and the game isn't as good quality because it's a way of checking each week that everyone turns up. And if the people don't turn up, I mean, they just set it out to me. It means that the guy may have died. Um, and the, the linked phenomenon, I guess, is the uh, arising of divorce rates and the, the kind of breakdown of the um, nuclear Japanese family, which sociologists over the years have had a, you know, written many a book on, but the, the very stereotypical Japanese family where the man was called the salary man and his aim was to work for, you know, Toyota or Yamaha or one of the big offices of state. And the woman was known as the education mama. She took the income and managed the children's education. And what happened, a few people told me, is that people just didn't expect to live so long. They had no role models. And within a generation, um, life expectancy went from about, 70, uh, from about 65 to 85. And these people had these hugely elevated retirements um, that they hadn't expected. Many of them got divorced. And so you end up with a lot of um, very uh, elderly and lonely single people. Um, and those are uh, people that in the world of policy um, we should worry about. Um, so I don't know for sure whether this phenomenon exists in the UK, but I remember from my time in policy, sometimes you see those charts showing kind of income deciles. And I remember when I first started out, I was assumed that the, the worst off, the, the hardest hit people in that first decile would be like a kind of single mother with a couple of kids, no job and so on. 
when you look into it, that those people are always tend to be in like the third, the third decile. The people right at the bottom are often single, elderly, no job, low pension, no relatives. And yeah, you, you need to be very, very concerned about, about those people. And, and they are, they're, they're coming up with um, innovative new ways to look at it. Um, including using movement sensors and AI things that look on people's driveways to see has this been swept, our newspapers building up. Um, but it's a real, it's a, it's, a, it's a dark and kind of growing social phenomenon there for sure. And the chapter, I mean, it has hints of optimism, but uh, pretty dire, pretty dire chapter in a lot of ways. Um. So I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to ask you one finishing question. In the, in the book, you write about nine areas. Um, I regret that I can't ask you about Tallinn, Estonia, because that, that seems uh, like it was a lot of fun. And that's, it seems like a fascinating place I would love to, love to visit. Um, but I'm curious... I have my guesses because some of the places that you went, um, they might have been a little bit taxing. I would imagine that the Syrian refugee camp was uh, was an adventure, but also quite taxing. I would imagine that Angola, which I'm a native New Orleanian, very familiar with with that area, um, Glas- Glasgow, uh, Kinshasa, Darien. These might have been a little bit more taxing. So I'm guessing that it might have been the uh, the Akita, Santiago, Tallinn area. But what chapter was the most enjoyable to research and write? Well, I like I really liked, and I'm I'm very um, glad that you picked up that the book's a kind of combination of travel and economics because it you know it was it was a it was a risk. I could have made it more economicsy and have kind of more working papers and facts and figures and less of this kind of storytelling travelogue approach. So, um, um, you know, that, that was something that I enjoyed. It's something I hadn't done before. And because of that, the places that were the really difficult trips, I think were the most enjoyable. Um, and in an odd way, I'm going to say Kinshasa. Kinshasa is really difficult to get into. The Congolese um, visa system is a is an absolute um, nightmare. They don't particularly want journalists going there, and it's this city. In a, it's like a it's a village basically of ten million people. It should be the best city on earth. Um, it's one of the worst on any measure: poverty, um, uh, childhood life expectancy, whatever. You, what, pick your measure. Um, Yet the people there are um, unbelievably open. Um, I got shown around. I got taken into people's churches. I got taken into countless houses for food and just absolutely um, keen to kind of have their story told. You know, a lot of places you go to, and particularly when there's like a political thing involved, people will say at the end, oh, you know, just call me Mr. Smith or, um, you know, if they say a particular thing that's a bit kind of um, risky, they say, well, can you, let's have that bit off the record. The vast majority of stuff ended up on the record, but like these people in Kinshasa where the government is known to sort of um, clamp down on, on people that speak out at the end of the interview, people would, would say, put this in your book. 
I want to be in the book. I want the world to know about this country and what's going wrong. And for me as an economist, the, the serious point, more people need to understand what's happening in the Congo is the economic crisis of the past century. Um, and the fact that the people there are so open and wanting to improve things and willing to talk about it was without wanting to go over the top on it, it was kind of a life-changing experience. Like I'll be going back there as soon as I can and doing other projects in economics there um, because of that trip. So, so um, yeah, so I'd say Congo, Kinshasa. I love it. The food and music are also amazing, which kind of helps. That's a, that's the reason to travel. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I deeply appreciate this. Uh, you've been extremely generous with your time. No problem. Such a good book. All right. So I recommend to everyone, um, follow Richard at, at RD Economist, at RD underscore Economist. Underscore Economist, yeah. Go to Amazon and buy Extreme Economies. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Brandon.